Hello there and welcome to episode 11 of The Quantified Body. I'm Damien Blenkinsop, your host. Today we're looking at heart rate variability again, but this time applied to some other areas. Now this convenient biometric is proving to have a really wide range of uses from training optimization to longevity assessment to stress management as we've covered in past episodes. So I'm sure you're getting the idea that this is a pretty valuable and very useful metric. So if you learn how to track it, you can do a lot of things with it. So, you know, it's a lot of return on investment for your efforts with this particular metric, which is why we've covered it in quite a lot of detail. In today's episode, we're looking specifically at how to use it in the optimization of endurance training, also known, of course, as aerobic or cardiovascular training, running, cycling, and so on. If you didn't listen to it, in episode one, we primarily looked at resistance training or weight training and optimizing training based on HRV. So that's a good intro also. In today's episode, we also look at a couple of other things. We look at scenarios where the HRV metric will go up, which is normally a good thing. However, it's an indicator of a bad thing. So it's a bit of a confounder here, a confounding scenario. And it's possibly related to adrenal fatigue, if you've heard of that issue, which is becoming more and more common today, but difficult to assess. So it's interesting that HRV can help with that. And finally, how to improve the accuracy of HRV by combining it with your resting heart rate and some other qualitative measures. Today's guest is Simon Wedgerith, who founded iFleet, the first HRV app company, which appeared around five years ago in 2009. In comparison to Andrew Flatt, whose focus was really on resistance training, heavy weight training, Simon has a background in primarily endurance training. So it's with this focus that he originally and today looks at HRV. Since 2009, through working with the iFleet client base, including a range of pro and amateur athletes, everyday gym goers, and now universities in connection with studies, iFleet has evolved its app to cater for specific scenarios like adrenal fatigue and understanding how individual factors are impacting training. Simon has been really diligent in staying up to date with the research and adapting the iFleet app to take advantage of the latest research and how it evolves. So get into some great detail in today's episode on HRV to fill it all in for you. To get the show notes for today's episode, to get the MP3 download and the interview transcript, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode 11. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hi, Simon. Thank you very much for making time today to come on the show. No problem, Damien. Really good to talk to you. What I thought we would first do is quickly, what does iFleet fit in with the world of HRV apps and development from your perspective? Okay, well, iFleet was the first HRV app available. And when I first started getting really interested in HRV, which was early 2009, um, I decided to, it was so interesting to me um, as an engineer by background, but also a keen recreational endurance athlete trying to make the most of my own uh, somewhat limited abilities that the iPhone was just being launched early in 2009. And talking to a couple of people, I was looking for ways to realize my hopeful uh, invention of a, of a convenient, simple to use, but accurate HRV measuring device. And people said, you know, why don't you do it as an app on the iPhone? So I started thinking about that. And I made that my target during 2009. And, um, you know, the prototypes all done on, uh, on an iPod touch. And at that time, I think it was iOS version two was just coming out. So we were easily the first to um, bring um, even accurate heart rate measurement onto the iPhone, let alone HRV. So we've been doing this for a little while now. And um, the product, I think the current version of the app is, is relatively mature because of that. It's also being the first gives you some advantages in the early adopters in research, started looking at it quite early on. And we've now got some good quality validation studies that have been done that show, in fact, the athlete measurement to have an almost perfect correlation with um, the gold standard of ECG, which we're very happy about. The athlete finger sensor has also been validated. Great, great. Well, you have a uh, free sensors and you're using the finger sensor 
the uh, the Bluetooth heart rate chest reps? And isn't there another one? Yeah, the other one was actually the original one, uh, Damien. So in the early days uh, of the iPhone, there wasn't any convenient and reliable way of getting a heart rate signal into the phone. So I designed a little adapter, a plug-in adapter that would go into the headset socket, uh, which I, th- I still think was a good choice because headset sockets are available you know, on pretty much every phone. And uh, the way they're connected has, has remained standard now for three or four years. So it's a, it's a little device which users can take from one phone to the next, be that iPhone, Android, or, or even Windows phones, uh, if we do an app version for that. And that little receiver picks up the signal from the polar type uh, of chest strap. And of course, those polar, that polar transmission system has been around since the early 1980s. So there's an awful lot of products in the market that support that. And in fact, although Bluetooth Smart is, is in many ways the state of the art and the finger sensor is the most convenient, we still sell a lot of the uh, what we call the little ECG receivers because of the massive installed base of, of polar type uh, straps and systems. Okay, great. So I know you stay up to date with the research. You've been following this since 2009 or before. So could you give us a bit of an overview from your perspective of the research? How much is there related to HIV? Where are the strongest areas and you know, how you look at it? Yeah, I think if you were to put heart rate variability into um, PubMed, which is the, you know, the recognized research uh, database of peer-reviewed papers, I think you'd probably get about 14,000 hits. So there's an awful lot of peer-reviewed research which has been done on HRV. Do you mean 14,000 papers? Yes, 14,000 separate, separate papers, yeah. Great, great. Yeah. Which, is, which is quite a high volume. A lot of that is focused on disease states, so looking at um, autonomic dysfunction, for instance, in diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, cancer, and um, a lot of other disease states like that. But there is a fair body of, of research studies on sports uh, sports performance and health as well. During my preparation for designing the iFleet app, I read about 500 papers during 2009, and I've now got about 1,000 in the collection, my, my collection that I've read. Um, so some of the papers have got some strikingly good methodologies and breakthroughs, and others are a bit weaker. I think one of the areas where heart rate variability research has not done itself any favors is not standardizing in units or protocols. Uh, for instance, things like the duration of the measurement, the, ex- the units that are going to be used, um, the position of the subjects, whether they're lying down, walking around, standing, sitting, what are they doing? There hasn't been much standardization there. Uh, I think partly because a standards document was never um, adopted in the industry. So one thing I noticed about your iFleet app when I was playing around with it was that when you're taking the reading, it's got the breathing timer. It's got this circle that moves up in and out uh, with your breathing, which I thought was great to try and standardize that aspect a bit better in terms of how you're breathing and just keep it more rhythmic again and controlled every time you're doing it instead of different. Is that why you put it in there? or Yes. Breathing has a very important impact on heart rate variability. So when we talk about uh, HRV, um, particularly in, in sports performance and everyday health use, we nearly always mean parasympathetic HRV. And parasympathetic HRV um, is primarily dependent on breathing. In fact, the HRV is, is caused as part of the breathing feedback loop with the brain. So as you breathe in, your heart rate gets faster. As you breathe out, your heart rate gets slower. And it always seemed to me as an engineer that unless you're controlling for breathing in some way, that your HRV measurement process is going to be somewhat unpredictable if you're just relying on a breathing pattern which is uncontrolled. So controlling that breathing, but without creating stress, hopefully, in the user is the objective here because everyone who knows much about HRV uh, will know that, that stress lowers your HRV. So we don't want to stress the person during the measurement but we do want them to have a constant breathing pattern. And hopefully, the isolate breathing pattern is something that's evolved over three generations of the app now. And we hope that people find it peaceful and relaxing to use. 
yeah, I, it's kind of like this pulsing heart thing. I, I find it relaxing and it's just nice to have an indicator because I've used other apps and, you know, they don't have that. So you, every time you're probably breathing a little bit differently, um, but you don't notice it. So I thought it was a nice touch. Thanks for that overview. So you've done a lot of work in the endurance and aerobic areas. So um, we haven't looked at that yet on the show. So that's what I'd like to explore a bit more with you in the uh, idiosyncrasies, the differences compared to weight training, which we've looked at quite a lot with uh, Andrew Flat in the past. How would you say that it differs from weight training and the way you HIV relates to endurance? Well, one thing um, that is a segue or a link from the body of research on HRV, Damien, is that um, a lot of the studies in the sports performance area have actually been done with endurance sports. So they've been done with running, cycling, rowing, cross-country skiing, because, of course, um, Finland and the Nordic area has been a, one that uh, has done a lot of adoption and, and research into HRV. So there is the body of research in endurance sports is strong. It's also something that I've been personally interested in, because one of the reasons I created the app originally was to improve my own performance originally in, in uh, triathlon, but, but lately in long-distance cycling. And so HRV, uh, interestingly, um, has been something which is really quite well proven and quite well uh, applied to endurance sports. And one of, the, one of the things about some of the research that's come out in the past couple of years has been the very good correlations between changes in HRV and changes in performance. So there have been studies done at the national level on French swimmers where they measured their, their HRV uh, before doing a weekly 400-meter pool time trial, and they found the correlation was so good between the individual's change in HRV and their variation in performance in the Thursday time trial that they said one or the other is good enough here. So if we, if we measure their HRV, they don't need to do the weekly time trial to assess uh, performance improvements. And uh, a key researcher in this field, also Martin Boucher, um, also found when club runners were training to improve their performance in 10K races, that only the runners that improved their HRV during, um, I think it was an eight-week training program, only the ones that improved their HRV improved their running times. The ones whose HRV didn't improve, their running times didn't improve either. So there's been some very clear findings in the endurance area. And I think um, training guided by uh, HRV is becoming more and more practical for endurance sports as a way of maximizing performance um, with the training time that's available, but without risking overtraining. Right, right. I know there's, with respect to endurance, we've touched on this a bit with Andrew Flat. He was talking about basically how he would be doing weight training and his HRV would go down. But if he did a bit of aerobic as well, he would limit how far his HRV would drop the next day. How do you explain that? What's going on there? Yeah, uh, there's been a pretty important uh, study that um, came out, I think it was late last year, from um, a couple of researchers in the University of Queensland in Australia, and again with Martin Boucher involved, uh, that built on work done by researcher Stephen Seiler, who's been looking at the way, for instance, uh, marathon and long-distance runners have trained in Kenya for many years. And, and what he observed there is that they tend to follow a polarized approach to training. So the majority of their volume, say 80% of their training time, is conducted at what appears to, to many athletes and coaches to be really quite moderate paces. It's fully aerobic work. And in fact, precisely defined, it, it's a level of aerobic work below the first lactate threshold. So essentially, the lactate level in the blood is close to the athlete's ordinary baseline. And recovery from that work, uh, from that kind of aerobic work, although you, athletes can do habitually quite high volumes of that, you know, many hours a week, is very quick. And that's reflected in, in HRV. But when you go above that threshold, then recovery um, takes much longer to achieve. So in Andrew's case, I think what he's reinforcing is the fact that aerobic exercise really allows rapid recovery. And the fact that the metabolism 
is accelerated is helping to process byproducts from the uh, from the high intensity sessions and perform essentially what we call active recovery so active recovery actually gets you back to baseline more quickly does that reduce the the stress because like well, the stimulus to improve your body in any way well we've also spoken to like doug mcguff of uh, body by science he talks about inroads so you know one of the things about heavy weight training is you want to create a large enough stimulus to improve strength so is this any way it sounds like it's reducing in a, in a way this the stressor is that a correct way to look at it i'm just wondering if that has an impact on how your body tries to compensate yeah, it does seem to be having that effect by stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. And this parasympathetic nervous system is good for reducing inflammation, for rebuilding energy stores, uh, glycogen in the liver, for ensuring that oxidative um, stress is reduced. And the really useful thing about um, long, slow distance or aerobic training in endurance athletes is that it provides... Uh, a good level of stimulus for mitochondria to adapt. So one of the things you want as an endurance athlete is an efficient metabolism. So with lots of mitochondria in the muscles, which are able to process fuels and, and turn those into energy. And what you also want is a metabolism that's able to use fats as fuels. You know, your store of, of fats in anybody, even thin people, is many, many thousands of calories. And, and fat is a very efficient way to store fuel. You know, it's nine calories per gram, whereas carbohydrate is 4.2 calories per gram. And carbohydrate is usually associated with quite a lot of, of water uh, retained in the body as well. So if you can use fats as fuels, that's a big advantage. If you're running a marathon, then you've only got enough um, glycogen for about, you've probably got about 800 grams. You know, you've probably got, your total body store is about 3,000 calories, of which your body will probably only allow you to use a couple of thousand. Um, so your ability to supplement that glycogen fuel with fat stores is something that your body learns to do and learns to adapt to. Um, when you spend time training aerobically. Yeah, we discussed this with Jimmy Moore. He's done a lot of work with other people in, in keto diets and so on, um, involved with training. Um, so yeah, it's good that for you to make that connection and bring that up in this context. Okay, so, so kind of round off the, the impact. So you're saying it helps recovery, it helps accelerate recovery by stimulating the parasympathetic system. That's right, as well as building... You know, building the cardiovascular system and, and energy stores and energy system to make you make you efficient, really, and be able to go for a long time. Are there any cases where we shouldn't be doing this? If we're just focused on HIV, it's like, oh, well, it leads to a higher HIV. So we should, if we're always just aiming to increase the HIV, which is part of the discussion I wanted to have today. So should we always be doing that? So if, if we're weight training and we can do a little bit of aerobic to increase our HIV, should everyone be doing this? I think everybody should be doing a certain amount of it, but it's not going to lead to good race pace performance unless it's also complemented by some high intensity stuff. And the general adaptation syndrome of Seeley, which was you know written a very long time ago, basically talks about stressing the system and then allowing time for it to recover. And when it recovers, it super compensates. So the body is, is stronger than it was before. And High-intensity work is a very good way of stressing the body sufficiently that it is stimulated to adapt and, and supercompensate compared to where it was before. And that's a necessary component of uh, high-performance athletics. Okay, okay. So it sounds like everyone, although it's not going to lead to a higher baseline by the sounds of it, if we think of we're trying to increase our HIV over time in terms of kind of aggregate rather than the ups and down adjustment cycle of just trying to time our training properly. Doing a little bit of aerobic with our strength training probably isn't going to increase the baseline. It just may help us to get back to an, another workout sooner than later in terms of recovering quicker. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah. Um... Or would that be actually kind of biasing the result and it would be better to... I guess this area isn't 100% clear as yet. It isn't 100% clear. I'm, I'm trying to recall my, you know, my own experience of, of doing a lot because I prepared for a pretty long cycling event uh, across the Alps this summer and I did a lot of hours of 
fully aerobic yeah. training. So I was very careful to keep my heart rate and intensity level below the first lactate threshold. And I mm. accumulated a lot of hours, basically about yeah. 15, 17 hours a week for about four or five weeks of this. I didn't actually see my HRV baseline mm. rise much. Um, what I did notice was my resting heart rate went down during that period, though. And that was a very clear trend. Okay, so let's talk about that, because I know that's something very important to iFleet. You track the HR, the resting heart rate as well, and you use that in, in your assessment, and you see it as an important part. So what is the RHR for you? What is it doing in terms of tracking and helping you um, to understand performance and recovery and so on? Well, resting heart rate, most people who do training and, and even people who know about health would recognize the lower heart rate the lower resting heart rate is, is very often a good thing. And most of the time that is true because it's actually the ratio of your maximum heart rate to your resting heart rate that determines your VO2 max. So there is, a, there is for instance, a, a ready reckoner for VO2 max, which is your maximum heart rate divided by your resting heart rate times 15 so, you know, as your resting heart rate decreases, your VO, if provided your maximum heart rate stays the same or only decreases a very little bit, then your VO2 max will increase. Now, there are also situations which can be due to either um, non functional overreaching, so um, some states of overtraining, or even. When we say non functional overreaching, what, what does that mean? Well, non functional overreaching is basically what you might think of as the third stage um, in progression of training load and recovery imbalance. So the first stage is, is shock, also known as the alarm stage, which is the body's healthy response to a new stressor. And during that stage, so, so you do something intensive, your body is temporarily stressed, it reacts with an increased sympathetic tone, increased output of central stress hormones, increased adrenaline, it's um, um, norepinephrine, cortisol. And if you then allow time for the body to recover, then it supercompensates and you actually end up, you are a little bit fitter than you were before the stressor had been applied. Now, overreaching is a deliberate imbalance of uh, training and recovery, usually over a short period of time within a periodized block. So a lot of endurance training programs are periodized into a month or a five-week block, whereby you have a progressive overload, then you know ending up with a, with a taper or a recovery week. And that is called functional overreaching, because you deliberately continue to stress the body and then in the last week, you taper and you supercompensate, and you know the benefits of training are embedded in your system. If the balance of, of training and recovery is such that you know your body really it can't cope with the amount of load that's being applied, and that can include environmental conditions as well. So that can include bad diet, lack of sleep, all these other things, which are in fact stresses to your body as well as training. Then if you know, after a short taper period, you don't recover and supercompensate, but you stay in the hole, as it were, then that's non-functional non overreach. Uh -huh. But people okay. do even go beyond that. It, it is, it is, yes, it is, it is really the way I would define non-functional overreaching is that when you take the training load away, you don't see recovery or supercompensation within a few days or a week. Uh, and does it take much longer or would you have potentially basically lowered your baseline by overstressing the body? Yeah, and, and it can take weeks um, to recover from non-functional overreaching. Now, non-functional overreaching is still not as bad as true overtraining. True overtraining is, is really quite a serious condition, and it's not that common, but it can take months or even years to recover from, or in, you know, it can. Uh -huh. How would you d differentiate the two? Yeah, um, true overtraining, again, is an extension of, of the states of, of overreaching, um, whereby you take away the training altogether, and the individual really remains in a, you know, a chronically stressed state. Uh, at in, in, I think it is quite rare, although certainly we've been contacted on a number of occasions by athletes and coaches who know that they are overtrained. And uh, this, is, this is also known as the exhaustion phase in the general adaptation syndrome. And the body is basically continually failing to adapt to the chronic stress. 
And the chronic stress um, also starts to burn out the adrenal system. So the central nervous system starts to shut down production of central stress hormones. Um, the adrenal glands themselves desensitize. Um, a sympathetic response is normally quite healthy. You know, when, when um, a person needs to have a fight or flight response they want to be able to turn it on and turn it off again quickly when somebody's overtrained that that response is pretty much absent to be honest right we talk a lot about the importance of parasympathetic in, in one of our previous interviews we talked about the fact that most people are sympathetic dominant mostly because of lifestyle reasons today and and so on um, so in the HRV Sense app, for instance, uh, Rhonda Collier, she, she, she noted that most people have a very high sympathetic in their um, LF and their HF tends to be much lower. And over time, they can you know, look at that for stress and so on. But now we're talking about also that overdominance of parasympathetic can be a problem. Is that associated with adrenal fatigue? Yes, indeed. Um, once the body gets itself into this state whereby... Uh, the sympathetic response is essentially impaired, then it's interesting. I mean, and that's a pretty bad state, right? I mean, that's also a state where protein synthesis becomes impaired. So, you know, muscle damage uh, becomes much more likely, decreased testosterone and other anabolic markers, increased baseline cortisol. So basically, you know, the body is in quite a, a stressed state, although its sensitivity to um, the adrenal family hormones has been reduced. And then, uh, you know, parasympathetic becomes essentially dominant. You could swing to a very a high HRV, which if you weren't looking at heart rate, you might say that that's a good state, right? So, right, right, right. So let, let's be clear. What, what, would, um, what would the heart rate be doing that's different to show that this is a negative HRV despite the fact that it's high? Yeah, so what actually happens is that the... Um, resting heart rate decreases pretty significantly compared to your normal range. So all of the iFleet measures are, are based on solid statistics and, and um, smallest worthwhile change and things like that. So we're always tracking rolling means and rolling standard deviations. And we can look at the heart rate and see if that all of a sudden, you know, if that over a, a short period of time, um, goes much lower than it should do normally and and coupled together with an unusually high HRV, then that is quite characteristic of um, parasympathetic dominant, um, sympathetic, um, you know, burnout state. Right, right. Have you come across many cases of this? Yeah, I've certainly seen it in myself. Um, we first came across it because it's not that well documented. So uh, most of the textbook stuff on overtraining tends to talk about sympathetic dominance. And indeed, that is the case through, you know, functional and non-functional overreaching. But then, you know, when people keep going, and there are some very motivated type A individuals that keep on going, and they get themselves further into this, into this um, truly overtrained state. Um, the, the first time we came... Right. So, so would it be correct to say that your HRV would go down for a while? Yeah. And if you ignore that, yes, then absolutely. you might get to this that situation. Is, that is exactly, exactly right. what we see. Right. First time we noticed this, in fact, was in the beta testing of the original iFleet app in 2009 uh, when we gave it to um, uh, a national standard uh, runner and triathlete. And he did a three-day running event in southern England over the South Downs. And he said, hey, you know what, guys? My HRV was really high this morning and I'm completely knackered you know, what's going on. And we started to look into it and talking to some researchers and develop this test basically out of that. Um, and we certainly have seen it a few, uh, you know, a few times. I've seen it a couple of times myself. In fact, the day after um, I finished the Haute Route Alps, which was a thousand kilometers in seven days across the Alps and, you know, <laughs> five or six hours a day on a, on a bike working, working quite hard. The day after that, the Sunday, um, my HRV all of a sudden swung from low, which had been progressively decreasing during the week, and it swung very high, associated with a much lower than normal resting heart rate. And I sleep went gave me a straight red. Right. So I doesn't mess about in that situation. Oh. It, it just gives you a red card straight away. Well, it's nice that it does that because um, you know often I, I imagine most of the apps don't pick that up that scenario. So um, in terms of a swing of HRV, uh, do you remember your, just to give people an idea, what was, where did it kind of start from baseline and it, and it lowered steadily to what, and then it jumped up one day? 
Yeah, um, I can remember the numbers right now. I did do a blog post about it, in fact. So it's on, um, yeah, myisleep.com slash blog. Um, I did a blog post about my HRV uh, before, during, and after this um, uh, this actual event. So if anyone wants to look at that. That's good. So, uh, so okay. we'll put a link right. in the show notes to help people. So, okay, so the final thing on this adrenal fatigue, because adrenal fatigue is a, a widely discussed topic today, because a lot of people... Not just people who are training, but often it's the weekend warriors, the people who are working during the week and they've got uh, pretty stressful jobs and then they're training at the weekends or they're you know doing triathletics and all, all these other things at the weekends. And there's this question of when they start getting more and more tired, is it adrenal fatigue? There's doctors, doctors that kind of, and clinicians that argue about this and how to test for it. And many of the tests are considered not um, ideally accurate. There's saliva tests, there's blood tests, but... and there's a bit of discussion there. So I'm just wondering whether you think this would be a relevant biomarker and if you've seen that anyone tried to compare it to some of those other adrenal fatigue tests. I haven't. Um, in a practical test, um, I could recommend for people, though, is, is if you suspect um, you might be starting to get adrenal fatigue, then the likelihood is that you won't be able to manage high intensity exercise. You know, you simply, you, you'll hear comments like, I was unable to get my heart rate or my power up into the right zone. You will notice that. And it is literally impossible. You just cannot manage the effort levels no matter how hard you try. So your perceived exertion would go right up, but your, your metabolism and your body wouldn't respond with the work to the workload and um, energy levels that, that, that are required. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed also that uh, when you were talking about how to notice this, you know, you spoke about an athlete who came to you and said, look, my HRV is really high, but I'm feeling terrible. I'm feeling really tired. So in iFleet, you have um, a bunch of indicators that you track whenever you track your HRV for training. In the morning, you have sleep, uh, fatigue, muscle and stress and mood and, and diet. Do these filter into some kind of algorithm or how are you using these to um, help people make decisions? They are going to. I mean, at the moment, um, these are quite widely used subjective metrics um, and they're, they're quite useful for tra tracking overall health and wellness as well. So at the moment, it, it's great for people to record those every morning. And on the iFleet, uh, if they rotate the dashboard around to the landscape chart, they can visually for themselves see correlations between any one of those variables and, the, and their HRV. And in my case, I'm really not very good um, if I'm lacking sleep quality or quantity. So, you know, my HRV normally shows quite a good relationship with my sleep score. Other people... Right. Might... Is that the same for everyone or do people have different weaknesses? You know, the high, high leverage weakness you've got to kind of avoid. So yours is sleep. Yeah. Mine is probably yeah. sleep too. Yeah, no, I, I think people absolutely do have individual uh, characteristics there and um, it could be stress for, for some people or it could be, could be diet in others if they have particular dietary sensitivities. Um, but what we're just starting to do right now, in fact, is a cooperation um, uh, with, a, with a UK university on some advanced statistical algorithms which will look for relationships between those individual subjective variables and the HRV over a period of time. So what we hope to be able to do um, within the next six to eight months or so is to be able to um, give users um, feedback and insights into their own data. I, you know, For me, HRV has always been a journey of personal discovery. I've found out things about myself, what my, what my body and my brain likes as assessed by HRV and, you know, I've been able to keep my HRV sort of steadily trending upwards over the five years that, that I've been doing this, um, whereas normally it would decline with age. But yeah, what we want, what we aim to be able to do is to give users insights, exactly as you say, Damien, telling people, you know, over the past month, sleep was the most important factor for you, perhaps again, and your diet was a second, and, and it seems like you've been having a lot of stress recently, and that's been affecting you as well. So I think there's potential for this to go quite a long way, including things like uh, perhaps looking at all the relationships between everything people are capturing, and then you know saying with some statistical confidence, all of this stuff that you're capturing isn't explaining all the variation we're seeing in your HRV. Is there something else? Is there, for instance, travel? You know, one of our one of the members of our team 
just noticed that driving for periods above uh, three hours um, was causing a big drop in his HRV the next day. So potentially we can also alert people to things that they're not capturing or not trying to understand right now, but which nonetheless are affecting their health. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just to be clear, because I, I didn't bring this up before, but th these ratings you enter into your app are uh, basically uh, from, you say, sleep quality, and you just give it a rating from weak. Yeah. It's kind of like zero to 10, right? And then, or you yes. can put it very, very strong. And that's for each of them. So they're qualitative measures, but uh, as you say, you're, you're finding correlations with them, and you're going to be looking into more of that. Yeah, well, we turn, you know, the position of the slider into a number, uh, like you say, between one to 10. And I think that's a technique. I think it's called a visual analog scale or something like that. And um, the statistics will be using those numbers to uh, determine relations and give people feedback. Oh, great. Well, thanks, thanks because we've explored a, a bunch of new topics and interesting scenarios that we hadn't uh, come up with before. Because you've got this user base, which is using iFleet, I think what would be interesting is like, what do you see people mostly using this for? And what are the kind of biggest use cases and most useful things people are using it for? We've got a wide variety of users. We've got well over 10,000 users now on the, on the iFleet app. And they really vary. They do vary from weekend warriors to all, all the way through to top professional athletes, both in team sports, endurance sports, things like boxing as well, um, through to health and wellness practitioners. So we certainly get quite a few bulk orders from chiropractors and, and holistic wellness practitioners and people like that. And I think it's used for all kinds of things. It's, it's used by health conscious people who just think HRV is a good metric to track um, every day. And, and of course it is. It's a sort of holistic measure of um, adaptation reserves uh, or overall well-being. So it's, it's a great thing for people to track. I think in, in the more serious side of sports, people are looking in their training not to have dug themselves into too much of a hole. Um, and they fairly quickly start to take the tool seriously when they get amber and red warnings and they still go training on those days. They fairly quickly work out that that's a bad idea and they start to trust the tool more um, to give them feedback on a day-to-day -day basis. Is there um, any scenario where you wouldn't trust it? Apart, I mean, we, we've highlighted one that you've identified and you've integrated now into iFleet, where that one HRV going up. Is there anything else you've kind of got on the horizon? Maybe there's a couple of other scenarios that need to be looked into. Yes, definitely. One of those is taking readings at an unusual time. So the iFleet algorithms are based on you doing things at the same time every day. Ideally, it should be first thing in the morning um, because then you haven't got additional variables of drinking a coffee or not or having something to eat or looking at opening emails, having an argument, anything like that. Those, those variabilities are all eliminated. And of course, another advantage of doing it first thing in the morning is that you can plan the day ahead. So, you know, Don, I got an amber instead of a green, but it's not too late. I can modify my training or something else that I was going to do today. That, yeah, that's interesting because um, in a future episode, I want to um, have someone talk about willpower because I've, I've read a, a fair amount about the correlation between HRV and willpower and you know, basically motivation and drive. So if I have a low HRV one day, I'm like, OK, I'm going to take on less less business tasks today i'm going to focus maybe on one instead of trying to get five done i i kind of factor it in like that and you know obviously you're feeling like that as well but I, i'm also kind of aware that maybe i need a recovery day and then in terms of just taking on work stresses and mental stresses and things like that in order to be able to take on bigger stuff the next day and so on absolutely or there might be some intervention which will help you a bit so if i get an amber in the mornings then you know i often you know just uh I, I will change my training to an hour uh, aerobic bike ride around a particular route in in the local forest that I really enjoy that you know is is visually stimulating and I know that will help me make the best of my current physiological state. But back to the question you were asking um, about when would you not trust um, iFleet or in fact any any HRV product that compares to baseline, and that is if you get up significantly earlier or later than your normal time. So one of the things about the waking measurement is that you are taking it after you've had the cortisol awakening response. So basically, when light starts to fall on, on the back of your eyes, even through your eyelids, it kicks off the uh, cortisol awakening response, which basically gets your body ready 
to to get up and start being active again. So it banishes the melatonin and it starts the sympathetic nervous system to a certain extent enough to get you out of bed and get moving in the morning. Let's say you normally do that at 7 a.m. And then one morning you have to get up at 4.30 in order to catch a plane or something like that. This is something that I noticed quite early on, that my HRV would in that situation be much higher than normal. Ah, because parasympathetic is higher. Yeah, basically, because my body was still in sleep mode. So the parasympathetic was dominant at that time. So basically, the circadian cycle is very important to control for. It is important to control for. And some people, I think everybody, once once they realize that, that really your morning measurement should be yeah, plus or minus 45 minutes, something like so, that. So I'm thinking jet lag is a... Because I, I just came from Europe to the US um, a few weeks ago, and my HRV has been a little... I think it, I was surprised to see how high it was, given how tired I was feeling. So maybe that that had some of the impact there. It could do. Um, it could do. Or do you think you adjust pretty quickly in terms of that cycle? Mm, I don't think you do adjust that quickly. Um, had so many stories reported back to us over the past few years. An Australian, uh, an Australian coach, said, "I never realised what an impact you know, jet lag had on my body." And you know, that was by doing HRV measurements. And he was flying backwards and forwards between Australia, Europe and America. And those are long haul flights. And I think one rule of thumb is something like um, your body needs a day to adapt its circadian rhythm to each hour of time zone change. So if you're doing all that transatlantic or transpacific travel, you're going to have a really hard time getting adjusted. And your HRV is going to give you feedback on that. Mm. So the only other confounders, basically, the, the issues is controlling for um, circadian rhythm and other things you're introducing, like caffeine or on those things. But in terms of actual scenarios, the only other one you've seen is where you continue to overtrain and eventually get to this adrenal fatigue situation without introducing. And then the other scenarios are where you've introduced either a circadian or, or some other confounder in, ter in terms of stimulant or activity, which is influencing your HRV. Yes, I would say so. Uh, that water has some interesting effects on HRV. Um, hydration level is something that, you know, some of the professional teams that are using iFleet, they want to control hydration level. So are you saying dehydrated would lower your HRV potentially? Or uh, Yes. Right, yeah. Because it stresses the system. So, yes, that will tend to make you more sympathetic dominant. But, of course, that's something that's quickly fixable, right? You drink water and within 15 minutes that HRV will have been restored because your body absorbs water so quickly. So that will give you a full slow. Right. So if you woke up dehydrated and you were normally fully hydrated, you would get a falsely low. Well, I mean, it is a low HRV at that point in time. It's relevant, you don't have yeah. to take it. It is relevant, yeah. it's important, but you don't have to take it easy the whole day because yes. recovery from that particular situation can be very rapid. You just drink a couple of large glasses of water and you're right as rain. That's a good point. It's a momentary HRV lapse, uh, a decline. Are there any other scenarios where there are HRVs you can quickly address? I'm, I'm thinking training scenarios. I mean, obviously, there's maybe a stress scenario, uh, caffeine and things like that. Yeah, mental stress is important. So people can account for those kind of things by, I hope if they've identified it, then they can retake their reading in an hour or or, or so and, and see if it's readapted to their usual baseline. Yes, they certainly could do that. Yep. Okay. Well, so you talked about some of the things you're going to be doing in the future with the algorithm and the correlation. Is there any other future developments um, and things that you wait? Like, if you're looking at the whole HRV app space, is there other things you're looking forward to or that you see could be possible in, in the future five or 10 years? Where do you see it all going? Well, what I personally hope for is that HRV, it is starting to get credibility now in sports training and sports performance. You know, it's becoming. Uh, thanks to some of the really good quality research that's been done, you know, it's becoming more and more trusted. I'd like to see HRV trusted as a, a precursor to Western chronic disease. And in particular, I mean conditions like high blood pressure. High blood pressure is uh, an autonomic imbalance disease. And basically, high blood pressure can certainly be caused by chronic stress over a period of time. And the, the blood pressure regulatory mechanism starts to go adrift. But you will see in the case of not only high blood pressure, but uh, type 2 diabetes as well, that HRV will go out of what ought to be considered acceptable normal ranges uh, months or even years before those diseases take hold. So what I'd like to see is 
HRV used as uh, an ongoing wellness barometer, if you like. So I'd like to see normative standards created for HRV measures and for those actually to be something that people do, perhaps on their own initiative, but something that primary care physicians, general practitioners, etc., are happy to discuss. Yeah, because, to, I mean, today we take our, if we go to the doctor for a standard checkup, we have our blood pressure and we have our heart rate, standard heart rate taken. What you're suggesting is that potentially HRV could be a better measure and it should be included in those if we could be more standardized and stuff, because you'd see it decline steadily over time if there was some chronic issues building. You would, and you would see it declining outside of a normal range. We exhibited, uh, we launched the finger sensor and V3 of the app at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in January. And we probably did 200 demos during the, whatever it is, the three days that CES is on. And we had people who illustrated HRV values, which by looking at them, some of them were, were predictable. And in some cases, people really needed to pay attention. So we had a, a, a very large gentleman came to see us who, who, who said he got, he got diabetes and he hadn't been exercising recently. And he got 35 on the iFleet scale. And that shocked even him because that is a very low number. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an extreme case. Is that lying down or standing? No, that, that was sitting. So we did all of these demos were done with people basically sitting at a table. But I would like to see some normative ranges exist for people and also that by tracking over weeks and months that they're able to do what I seem to be able to do, which is to basically find ways to keep my HRV increasing over the long term as opposed to declining with age. HRV is a very good forward-looking indicator. That's why I sometimes call it a barometer. You know, it's telling you about the weather to come rather than the weather as, as it is right now. I would like to see it accepted and accredited. And I think there's been a useful start made in that area recently. Um, there's been this announcement about the Palo Alto Prize. And that basically is, I think, either half a million or even a million dollars award to researchers who can show initially in laboratory animals that they've developed techniques which would cause um, animals HRV not to decline over a period of time. And event the idea is that that will be applied to human studies later on once the techniques are proven. So HRV is starting to become recognized now as a longevity indicator. Right, right. You won't have seen it yet, but we also interviewed uh, a guy named Todd Becker, who's very interested in hormesis and aging and longevity. And you might have read his stuff. He does. Yeah. He plays around with that to increase HRV. I did read his, his article on HRV was, was excellent. Really, really good. Yeah. yeah. So he has some interesting points on that. Um, yeah. Look out for the interview when it goes up because it has some relation with this uh, discussion. Well, so in terms of places where people could go to learn more about this, are, are there any people or uh, particular journals where you, you think are good sources of information about HRV? One of my observations about the HRV, there's this massive body of research out there, but unfortunately it's largely untapped. And I think that's partly due to the impenetrable nature of medical research language. What we have tried to do is also to summarize a number of what we regard as some of the most important articles. So in the on the iFleet blog, we have done a number of research summaries where we've tried to take capture the essence of what we regard to be some of the most important papers and put it up there for, for people to look at. We're also we're doing a new website where we'll be putting more resources in there. Um, I think Todd Becker's article is an excellent introduction to HRV with a really good um, a really good, if you like, approach to experimenting with different interventions on himself to see what made a difference. I think Andrew Flatt's doing some very good work at hrvtraining.com. There are a few sites around, and, and even Men's Health carried an article or two on, on HRV over the past year. Was that a good quality article, or, or is it just good that it's getting the word out there? It's good that it's getting the word out there. I think they're reasonably brief at the moment, um, but HRV is getting more mentions in the mainstream uh, press, which I think is important. Great. Okay, so I'd like to round off with a couple of personal questions. Always like to um, get some information about how people like you, who obviously spent a lot of time thinking about data on your biology and, and working with it, actually make use of it. So what kind of data metrics do you track for your own body on a routine basis? 
HRV, I guess, obviously. <laughs> and it, but beyond HRV or the specific context of HRV? I'm, I'm always wrestling with how to quantify my training. So training load is something that's interesting to me. And I don't think that any of the existing measures are really adequate. So is that, you're talking about cycling or, or so you talk about volume or? Yeah, that is the point. So training load metrics, uh, there, there are many of them. So how do you quantify any kind of workout? If it's cycling, is it miles? Is that a good, is that a good indicator? Is it average heart rate? Is it something about zones, the amount of a weighted addition of all the zones you're doing? In team sports, they use RPE a lot, which is rating of perceived exertion. They also do translations from uh, GPS data using group statistics for acceleration levels and running speeds and things like that. But all of this training load stuff what are we trying to achieve exactly with respect to, you know, training is all about stimulus and adaptation. And what I can see in endurance sports, there's two completely different kinds of stimulus that we provide to the body, both of which seem to be necessary and, and both of which are, are very helpful. One is this aerobic stimulus, which some people call the long, slow distance. And the other one appears to be the high intensity stuff. So how should we quantify each of those other than by observing Kenyan runners who win all the long distance races and seeing what they do? I'm really interested in the science and the biology and the physiology behind that. Um, there's all the stuff about calories. How do we measure calories? Why do we measure calories? What exactly are we going to do with that information? That stuff is of interest to me. Calories was of interest before I did this transalpine cycling because I wanted to lose weight, but I wanted to do it in a controlled way and in a safe way as well. So I didn't actually damage either my health or my sports performance, but I wanted to lose seven kilograms, which is a stone. That's a, fair, a reasonable amount of weight, but I wanted to do it very safely. So. so you focused on calories to do that? I ended up actually focusing on food types. Uh, so what I actually did, as advised by my good friend, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, was actually just to deliberately introduce a lot more protein into my diet. And basically, diets, there's an easy way and a hard way to diet. And I think the hard way is to think about all the things that you can't do. And I think the easy way is to introduce good stuff, and that will necessarily push out some of the other things. And what I mean by that is, Mike's advice specifically was to increase my protein intake dramatically. And one of the ways I chose to do that was by having a big omelette after training in the mornings every day. And that actually makes you much less hungry during the day for snack foods, biscuits, carbohydrates, things like that. I also also asked my wife not to buy biscuits and not to put biscuits in the yeah you know, or cookies in the cookie jar so that those were just sort of taken out. I was also with chocolate. I just said I'm only going to have like two squares of 70% chocolate a day. And that's okay because 70% cocoa chocolate is so strong that you don't want lots of it anyway, but it does sort of just satisfy that need. So by eating deliberately eating lots of protein, I basically pushed out quite a bit of carbohydrate and that combined with the volume of training actually tailed my weight down quite nicely. Right. You make an interesting point on calories because there's a lot of devices coming out to measure calories. Now, one of the areas of investment and obviously that's been a huge focus for the last 30, 40 years in diet books and, and so on. However, there's a fair amount of research now to say that calories are not necessarily the whole thing, input and output, and that it's a bit more complex than that. And our discussion with Jimmy Moore uh, a couple of weeks back about focusing on fat, you focused on protein, he focuses on fat intake, and it has the same impact. It satiates you and you tend to lose weight and you're not counting calories. Yeah, so there's this argument whether is it useful to count calories. And these are the kinds of discussions I love to bring up because especially when the marketing and everything is out there is saying like, let's count calories. It's gonna, it's gonna change our behaviors. It's gonna have an impact on our lives. But is it really as beneficial as, as it's portrayed to be? Or are there better methods like um, with Jimmy Moore, we looked at using the ketonics, which measures your state of ketosis. And as long as you're staying in a state of ketosis, you're gonna be losing weight. So there's other approaches to it that may be more useful, uh, depending on what you're doing. And the training load thing, uh, I think, is also interesting and difficult. As you say, there's not really any measures. We, we talked to Doug McGuff from Body by Science. He's a very specific protocol, which kind of allows to do that. But you have to use that exact training protocol. 
Whereas I think we kind of really need to get to is like you were talking about is we have the metabolic and the, and the strength or, or as you call it, the aerobic and the, um, and the high intensity, the high intensity stimulus. Yep. And how do we quantify those? Is there any way to quantify those so we can see what stressor we're getting? And then we could see, oh, we got a decline in our HIV because it was that stressor, right? Um, and currently you're trying to do this with the qualitative measures, which is pretty much the best I've seen that exists today as well. I don't know if you, so you, you haven't seen anything. It seems that you haven't, on, on your journey yeah. of looking for that, you yeah. haven't yet found anything that might be better than a qualitative measure. No, I'm, I'm always looking for things which, which are practical, which people will actually do every day. So anything which is too complex to calculate, people might do it a few times out of interest, but then it's not going to embed itself as a habit. One thing I will say about calories, though, uh, this old motto of what gets measured gets done, so giving people some kind of feedback that they can relate to, which motivates them, is always important. And whether that's steps or whether that's calories, I personally don't mind, so long as it motivates them to embed good, good habits and, and to reach for smart targets and goals. What I think the particular problem I have with calories is that, yes, perhaps you can measure calories out, calories expended, calories coming in is pretty difficult, though, unless you're really going to spend a lot of time not only looking at the back of food packets and weighing things out exactly, which can be done, but at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to work out that well either. I mean, Nigel, It's very impractical. It, it's very time-consuming. It's very impractical, and it doesn't actually work out that well. So people who've tried to do this very exactly, like Nigel Mitchell, who's the uh, consultant nutritionist for Team Sky and is a very well-recognized uh, and, and respected nutritionist, says that if you do this this exercise exactly, so on... Uh, professional cyclists, they use power meters. You can measure the exact number of joules that they've expended. Um, they can also measure the efficiency of, of the cyclist in terms of oxygen consumption. They can work out very accurately how many calories in those guys should, should need. And even if you do do all the food weighing stuff and measuring and everything else like that, the weight balance doesn't seem to come out exactly as, as you would have hoped. There's some quite large inaccuracies in there. One of which I believe is potentially the fact that the calorie numbers on the back of the food packets are achieved by burning the product in pure oxygen and seeing how much heat it gives off. But how, to what extent does that really represent the way our digestive systems work? And do they always do the same thing with two forkfuls of pasta? Does it, does it matter you know, what else you've got in your stomach at the same time? And your microbiome, which is another interview we recently did, like your microbiome can impact how you metabolize the food. So I think it is more, it's a more than calories. Um, and it seems like this, the research is steadily going towards that, but it actually seems pretty complex. You know, microbiome, the types of macro uh, and micronutrients that you're consuming. Um, but as you say, like if you're counting calories, you're potentially looking at helping yourself to behave better. Um, so it potentially could help. Just, just uh, I think there is a device in a crowdsourcing uh, project which is tracking in calorie input. So in a more convenient method, I think it's still in crowdsourcing. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if that one works out. Because yeah, like noting down everything you eat is not something that I could see people doing for a very long time. What has been the biggest insight about your own biology that you have drawn today? from any data or anything you've tracked? I will tell you, uh, I haven't mentioned before in this discussion, but it, it is actually um, HRV, so HRV biofeedback, which is another, a, another topic in its own right and, and maybe one that uh, you'll cover in a future podcast. But one of the things in my journey to steadily increase my HRV was I, I do tend to be quite a driven person. I do tend to get moderately stressed. And my wife is much calmer. Um, she's been doing yoga for a number of years, and she's always told me, Simon, you should, you should try yoga breathing. And I, I must admit, I did, I did poo-poo it a bit until I actually had a chance to meet up with, a, with an old friend who, who was a yoga instructor, and he told me about breathing. And I started to relate that to HRV, and I built myself a little biofeedback app prototype. And that, over a period of just a few days, made a big change upwards in my baseline of about five or six um, athlete points. And that was, a really, that was a really big insight for me that I could increase my HRV and feel much better quickly by using basically guided, guided deep diaphragmatic breathing. And there are good reasons 
as to why that should work. You were tracking, you're doing this for like, what, 10 minutes per day or, or something like this, and you're using a HIV device to see if you're raising it, or are you just using the HIV for training every day and, and just watching? So it was like an experiment. It, it was like an experiment. I did my, my fleet reading every morning, and then, I mean, you couldn't help but notice how much it had swung upwards when I started doing this breathing practice. And what I found even more surprising was that when I experimented again by not doing it for a few days, my HRV remained um, elevated. So it seems to have a chronic effect on, on upwards HRV. And I think this is a technique uh, that's got a lot of potential for the future as well. Yeah, very interesting. Great, great point. Okay, last question. What would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use some form of data to make better decisions about their body's health or performance? Uh, I think it would be do it consistently. Record, do it consistently preferably uh, you know, every day or several times a week and do it for a period of time. And when you're trying to, if, if it's a measure that you're trying to improve, like HRV, try to change just one thing at a time to see if that thing does make a difference. So just be a little bit scientific in what you do and how you do it, because otherwise, you know, there's so much data around now, but actually deriving information from that data is in some ways getting harder because there's more and more data, more and more variation in it. Great, great point. And yeah, the information overload is going to get worse as time goes on because there's so many devices and things coming out. I, I know I already have too many devices um, and I'm trying to decide which ones I focus on. And HRV happens to be one that I very consistently do because it was very rewarding and I noticed the changes. So Simon, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it's been a great discussion and can't wait to put this out on the podcast. Okay. Cheers, Damien. Good stuff. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.